we are finding it increasingly vital to share the stories of our World War II veterans as we are so quickly losing them. Legacy is what this project is about, after all. Due to the popularity of our Memorial Day social media post on Medal of Honor recipient Woody Williams, we realize that even more so. They are called the greatest generation for a reason. And this particular project on Alfred Hawes harrowing experience during the Bataan Death March is a great reminder of why that is. I talked about this with our producer, the great Jacob Phillips, and I discussed it in depth with my dad as well. It's been over six years since we told Alfred's story. So we were all in agreement that it's time to reintroduce some of the greatest generation stories. Now, Alfred passed away shortly after we completed his project, so obviously we can't have him on the podcast. But what I decided to do, thanks to Jake, is reintroduce the work by narrating it myself. So, without further ado, we bring you a special edition of the Project Podcast, 1,321 Days in a Death Camp, a reintroduction to the one and only Alfred Hawes. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Now, just so I can paint a little bit of the scene for you, I was at a senior living assistance center, senior assistance center, across from Alfred's daughter's house called Autumn's Blessings. And uh, I'm forgetting some of the details. Obviously, it's been six years. But what struck me about the moment and what struck me about being there the most was just the chills walking into that room and being with such a legend. Baton Death March. Anyways, I I've, I've, don't want to talk about the setting too much because the man is really what we are getting to and needing to get to here. So when I sat down with Alfred, my first question was, what was the hardest day for you in the war? And Alfred said, my brother was in the march with me as well as my wife's brother. My brother Claude wasn't really healthy. The lack of food, dysentery and malaria killed a lot of us. We were together until the end, though. I was with him all the time. In fact, my brother was in my arms when he died. He couldn't eat the rice diet they gave us. They cooked the rice and gave us the starch water. He died of starvation, among other diseases. My tent was right next to his. When he got so bad he couldn't get around, I carried his food to him. I did everything I could to help him. I would do whatever they'd let me do to help him. Claude died in my arms, and I laid him on the ground like I was supposed to. Then I called them over to grab him. They dumped him in the trench. My family wanted to bring Claude back, but the bodies were in the trench for 20 years. How could they possibly know it was him? I told my mother that I wouldn't go to the funeral if they brought him back, because I wouldn't believe it was really him. The bodies were all twisted and turned, about 75 of them in one hole. 
my next question for Alfred was, what was the march like? The Baton Death March. He said, the march was a long, dry, and dusty route to get to the camp. We didn't have hats or any type of covering. They made us march no matter how hot it was without water. They marched us for miles and miles and miles in the hot sun. Took us about three days to get there. Only the strongest ones made it through the march. If you fell down, the Japanese either bayoneted you, shot you, or ran you over with their trucks. One of the Japanese soldiers pulled me out of line, stuck a round in his revolver, and shoved the barrel into my gut. He rolled the chamber, then pulled the trigger a few times. God protected me, and the gun didn't go off. He yelled at me to get back in line. They didn't feed us all, and we were in the hot sun. I don't have a hip anymore, because the joint is rotten from the march in my diet. The Japanese would make Filipino women hide behind trees and tell us they could help us escape. Behind the tree or building would be the Japanese soldiers waiting for us if we tried to get away. When an American GI would go over there to that woman saying they could help them, the Japanese would execute them. I saw a pregnant lady behind the building step out once, and by then we all knew it was a trick. The Japanese soldiers saw that we weren't going to fall for it, so they slit her belly open in front of us. They didn't value human life. I asked him after that what the camp was like, what the conditions were at Camp O'Donnell. We were held for a while in the first camp and didn't do anything. Then they lined up and put us to work. Shigoto was the word they always used. The first day, the commander stood up on a table and told us he didn't care if we lived or died. If we didn't work, they'd pass us around and beat us for a while with clubs. They tied one of our soldiers to a post and beat him with canes throughout the day until he eventually died. You worked whether you wanted to or not. We worked all day and we had a little time for breaks. I didn't have much time to myself. Some of us built aircraft carriers or runways. I was working on a runway. They gave me a shovel and a wheelbarrow and that's all I had. I hauled dirt and filled in the holes to make the runway smooth. I did that for quite a while. I don't remember all that I did after that. I worked in a pit for a while, about the size of this dining table. They'd roll out hot sheets of metal, and I had a job making sure they stayed in line. My wife's brothers were in that camp. The younger brother was picked to go on a detail, John Moss and his older brother, Glenn, knew something was going on. A lot of times, guys wouldn't come back from details. He traded places with his younger brother, hoping he could save him. But they sent both of them on the detail. They brought him in a cave and tortured him and killed him. His older brother was shot to death. In the opinion of the Japanese, dying is an honor. Americans obviously don't feel that way about it. The Japanese didn't respect us because of that. You know, the work ethic my parents had instilled in me was what kept me alive during my time in the camp. They hadn't taught me the value of hard work. I would have died. I can still smell those bodies in the camp. It was either work or serious business. There was no time for laughter. You either worked and ate or didn't work and you were beaten. There wasn't a whole lot of food, but I ate what I could. I remember there was a pile of rice in a field once. They took us out there to shovel that dirty rice. We shoveled it into the truck. We ended up eating that. 
I ate the rice they gave us, but it had rocks in it. They used to dip those rice balls into feces and urine before feeding it to us. They hoped we'd get sick and die so they wouldn't have to deal with us. I had to get dentures because those rocks and the rice balls tore up my teeth. I was scooping the rice up onto the truck one time, and one of the Japs hit me in the back with the shovel. He hollered, Shigoto, and hit me with it. He didn't think I was working fast enough. It was hard work because we were so unhealthy. Even the easiest work was made hard because we were in such bad shape. I could probably do more work now than I could have then. The Japanese were so mean. They didn't care if we lived or died. I saw some guys get beat up every single day. I remember they sat one of the guys on the side of a bank after he dug a hole, and they shot him and put his body in that hole. He dug his own grave. I asked Alfred next, was there ever a moment when you felt like you wouldn't make it? And that answer, although it seemed obvious to me, it was important to get to the depth of that question. And Alfred answered simply, but profoundly. I didn't think about not surviving. I just remember praying to God that if I made it out, I'd dedicate my life to him. The situation was so desperate that I think everyone felt that way, though. I was strong when I got to the prison camp, so I was fortunate. A lot of the guys weren't strong enough, and they didn't make it back. Wow. I asked him next how he lost his arm. Uh, Alfred was an amputee. Obviously, most amputees didn't survive back then, so he was a real-world example of one of the few that did survive. On August 8th, 1945, I was a member of a 43-man detail who was assigned to work in the Tabata Steel Mills, located about 15 miles south of Moji. At approximately 9.40 a.m., the air sirens blew, and we were given a 30-minute break. None of our detail went into the shelters because the Japanese didn't let us. It was the policy of the Japanese to keep all POW details working, even after the sirens started. About five minutes later, the bomb started exploding though none of us could hear the planes overhead because of the noise of the mill. I was hit at 10 a.m. and my arm was severed at the shoulder. None of the Japanese guards or pushers, as we called them, were around to administer first aid, so I had to apply a tourniquet myself. It was not until five hours later that the Japanese furnished me any treatment, and then it was poorer than that which I had improvised. It was not until five hours later that the Japanese furnished me any treatment, and then it was poorer than that which I had improvised. Eight hours after I had been hit, an American doctor gave me help, but I was almost dead by this time. He was forced to hold me down and hack it off. I came back and I was 97 pounds when I got to Brigham City, Utah. I remember when the Americans came to get me. I was as excited as anybody could be. I knew when the bomb at Nagasaki went off that I was going to be free. I was there when the bomb went off. They told me you couldn't live through something like that, but I lived through it. I remember the colors. There was red, green, and yellow. I was on the ground when it went off. The first thing they told you was to lay flat on the ground when it detonated. My next question for Mr. Hawes was, how much harder was working with that loss of your arm in the war? And a lot of these questions might seem obvious. Obviously, I was um, 
much younger in the craft, hadn't worked through some of my own understanding of what it meant to interview. But I think this question ended up being a great one because of the answer. My next question for Alfred was, how much harder was it working with that loss of your arm in the war? He said, it depended on what I was doing. I had an artificial arm back then, and I remember when I first used a scoop to scoop the grain off the threshing floor to see if I could, and I did it. I just took one shovel, and I did it. You learn to do things very easily when you know you have to do them. I remember one of my sergeants saw my shoes and asked me how I tied them. I told them I did it with one hand. I just lost my arm a couple of weeks before that. He told me there's no way I could have done that, and he untied my shoes. When he came back, they were tied again. He untied them again, and I stood there. I tied them in front of him. You do what you have to do when there are no other options. I remember he uh, laughed when he said, I uh, tied them in front of him. My next question for Alfred was if he was born and raised in New Mexico, or if not, where he came from. I was born in the western central part of Oklahoma and raised mostly in New Mexico. The town I was born in isn't there anymore. It's gone. There's still a few grain elevators operating, but that's it. We live more in central Oklahoma than any other part of it. I was born in Oki, but not from Muskogee. I had three brothers and four sisters. I'm the only one left. My dad moved us around a lot. We moved to Kansas for a while when I was young, where my grandparents lived. We moved back to Oklahoma after that, then we moved to Texas for a while. My father was a very hard worker. I remember my mother, Esther Volkman Haas, was the most gracious woman you could ever meet. She passed away in 74 from cancer. I don't remember a person more gracious than her. My mom was the most jolly, happiest, hardworking woman you've ever seen in your life. She was a real go-getter. She loved people and helped take care of everyone. She was a Christian, but didn't go to church often. She didn't have nice enough clothes to wear, so that kept her away. She was the most sensible and reasonable person I've ever known. I'll be glad to see her in heaven someday. I worked on a farm most of the time I was with my dad. After the war was over, I went back to working with him during the wheat harvest. I worked mostly with my brothers after the war. They had combines, tractors, trucks, and scoops for the harvest. My next question for Alfred was, what was it like when you got to the Philippines first off? I wanted to know what it was like to be a part of that initial war effort. We left from San Francisco on a ship to get to the Philippines. We stopped in Hawaii first, and they turned us loose for a night. We had one night there. We were as free as anybody could be. We drank a little beer at the saloons and ran around and had a good time with the Hawaiians. When we got to the Philippines, we were just waiting for the war to start. We held the Japs off for quite some time over there. Each of us only had a 30-30 rifle with very little ammunition. They said if we'd had a few more bullets and a ham sandwich, we would have beaten the Japanese. They called us the battling bastards of Bataan. I remember when we ran out of food and we were eating whatever was available, including horses and mules. I think we were just a diversion set up by MacArthur. He knew we'd be captured. There weren't enough of us to fight them. I was in the 200th Coastal Artillery. When the war started, I remember they set up a tent for church meetings. 
I went in there and I told the Lord I'd do his work if he let me come home. I've tried to do that since I've come home, and I think I did a pretty good job at that. I asked him next why he joined the army. I didn't want to go over there, but I had to protect my brother. I went there to be with my brother and protect him. I was living in Texas, but I was drafted by New Mexico. I could have gotten out of it because I was living in Texas at the time, but I promised my mom I'd go be with Claude. I did my best to defend him. I didn't have a family at the time, and I'm honestly glad I didn't have one. I didn't have to worry about them. I was single and had no worries going overseas. I didn't want to have a family before the war started because I didn't want them to have to worry about me while I was at war. I put that off until after I came back. My favorite memories were just being able to work freely and live the life I wanted to live. I met my wife Mary after living in Clovis a while and got married. Her brothers had died in the Japanese camp. She lived across the street from my house. I remember she loved to dance. She was really good at it. She taught me a little bit about dancing, but I never got really good. She had a two-step partner, and they won at the Senior Olympics. I had a child a year after I married her, and she died at birth. Two years later, I had a son, then I had a daughter, and a year after that, another daughter. I drank and I smoked a lot when I got back because of my PTSD. After a while, we moved to Montana where I quit smoking and drinking. I became a farmer and rancher. I planted a two-acre garden so we'd have food for the winter. We had cows and we had sheep. That was good for me because I got to get away from the stressful things in life. It was nice to be working in the outdoors where I didn't have to think about the bad times. I planted this huge garden and I told my wife which were the plants and which were the weeds. She pulled the plants and kept the weeds. <laughs> I'd worked in Albuquerque before that for a while at the Atomic Energy Commission in a very secretive job. I wasn't allowed to tell anyone what I did. After being in the war and dealing with the stress of the job, I started developing ulcers. The job was quite honestly killing me. That's one of the main reasons why we moved to Montana. It was nice to be able to do my own thing as a farmer and rancher. I joined the Forest Service while we were living in Montana, where I planted trees and fought fires. I had an artificial arm that had a hook on the end so I could work with the Forest Service. After I retired, we moved back to New Mexico to Truth or Consequences, then to Clovis, then to Amarillo. That's where my wife passed away. I was married to my wife for 63 years before she passed. I asked him shortly after that question, what's been your most memorable experience since you got back? And he said, my favorite thing has been being able to teach people, and especially children, about God. I preached for three years. All the members of my church moved away, though, so I didn't have any more people in the congregation. The church that was sponsoring me told me to shut it down. I loved it while I did it, but I found out I really didn't have enough of an education. I only went through a year and a half of high school. That was the last time I was in school. I worked on the farm after I left high school. My next question was, what was the most therapeutic thing for you in coming back home? It was just good for me to be outside and get back to work. My dad was a farmer, and he still used horses to pull plows. I thought it would be smarter to use a tractor, but my father didn't like that. I ended up moving to Friona, Texas to farm with my brothers because they had tractors. 
My father refused to buy a tractor. I told him we could get so much more done and help the family more financially, but he didn't think tractors would last. He thought horses were better, so he bought a few new horses and I moved in with my uncles. My father got pneumonia and died a few years later. He was in his 50s. I still remember my dog Joe that took care of my mom while I was gone in the war. He was still alive when I got back. I also remember a few mean hounds came up the road looking like they were going to tear him to pieces. He backed up near a thorny bush outside and just stared them down. They looked at him and decided, ah, shucks, we don't want none of that. I know that's what they were thinking. I saw him do that twice in one day. That dog could fight. While I lived with my brothers, that dog was with me all the time. I asked him, what would you tell anyone looking to get into the military and the army in particular? He said, being in the army isn't all that bad, and it isn't all that good either. Your time in the army is what you make of it. If you behave and follow the rules, you won't have much trouble at all. Do what they ask of you, and do it the best you can. I asked him after that if he felt detached at all when he first got back. I was really just exploring this idea of losing purpose after shedding the uniform and becoming a civilian again. He said, I felt like I didn't belong when I got home. There was no recognition when I got back. I had a lot of issues I was still dealing with. The way I was treated in the camp and the things I saw made me feel like I didn't belong when I came home. I didn't know where I belonged. I think people are much more grateful for our service now than they've ever been. My next question was, if you could say anything to the guys from your unit, what would you say to them? How do you want to be remembered? Legacy is obviously a very important part of this work, so I thought that was an important question. I still believe that's an important question, even now. I'd tell them, I believe our sacrifices were worth it. The world is a different place. People's lives have been changed for the better. I just hope people remember me as honest, fair, and a good Christian man. There are lessons to be learned from these revered warriors. In a society that's constantly about self-love, there isn't much room for patriotism. Men like Alfred are fading reminders that freedom requires self-maintenance and care. Without Staff Sergeant Hawes, America isn't the America we love. There are no foundational freedoms. Remember the sacrifices of our great generation that stuck up for democracy, honor, and integrity. Remember that it wasn't one glorious charge up a hill that saved our nation from certain despair. It was the countless cruel hours of horrifying destruction where men's courage prevailed through fear. There's nothing pretty about war. Alfred Hawes is an incredible reminder of that actuality. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.